Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin took us into the details of the conditional witness examination of NYPD Detective Michael Strzok, the initial investigator of Kathy Durst's disappearance. In this episode, Lewin steps back from the conditional witness examinations and discusses his storytelling strategies as he sought to convince the jury that Robert Durst was guilty of killing Susan Berman beyond a reasonable doubt. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. And sometimes, if you hear heavier breathing than normal or footsteps, that's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes. Given that the subject of this episode is John Lewin's storytelling strategy at trial, you may find it illuminating to revisit the first eight episodes of season one of this podcast, which cover Lewin's opening statement to the jury, or bonus episodes 16 through 30 of season two of Jury Duty, where we present interviews with two of the jurors who were Lewin's target audience during the trial. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. In the world of film and television, and podcasting for that matter, storytellers are trying to be compelling to their audiences. We're trying to get them to pay attention or not to change the channel or walk out of the theater or not to move on to another podcast. As a trial attorney, and particularly as a prosecutor, you have a much different task, right? Uh, can you describe your process of approaching the jury as your audience? Okay, so one of the areas that I've that I've lectured on that's uh, I think um, you know one of the reasons that I've been successful over my career in trials is jury selection. I love it, and one of the things that I try to teach people is that what you want to do and forget about the accuracy what's behind it or what's politically correct, et cetera. I'm going to use this example. I understand that it's not what occurred, but I want you to assume for a moment that Columbus discovered America, okay? I just want you to assume. I understand he didn't wash up, it didn't come to the United States. I think, what was it, Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic, wherever it was, he actually ended up landing and other people had come first. But just accept for a moment the kind of general history that little kids are taught, hey, Columbus discovered America, right? The Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. I assume, is that what you grew up with, Carrie? Yes. So bad trial lawyers 
try to demonstrate to the jury how smart they are. So I will never forget that a DA many years ago, now a judge, I'm not going to name him, very smart guy, very arrogant, is doing, a, he's behind me in the office and I'm helping with training. And he's doing an opening statement. And his opening statement is basically this. It was not until I was a sophomore at Berkeley that I truly understood uh, the meaning of um, Oedipus Rex. And he does this lengthy opening with, you know, literary discussion where I'm guessing there were four professors at Yale who probably would have given him a standing ovation, right? Now, our jury pool would be like, wait, Oedipus, doesn't he live up on 57th Street? Your jury's going to be like listening to this going, wait, I know I know a guy named Oedipus. He lives up on 57th Street. They're not going to be getting the literary illusion. I couldn't even tell you today what he even was talking about. But he was so proud of himself that he had taken some misdemeanor case and used Oedipus in his closing. What he didn't understand was, is the smarter and more intellectual he made himself look, the more distance he puts between himself and his jury. He didn't get it. He wanted them to look at him as, you're so smart, and they're not going to know what the hell he said. Smart prosecutors figure out, even if it's not necessarily true, how to make jurors feel like they're the smart one. So how do you do this? Well, when I lecture on voir dire, what I tell jurors is, this is what you want to do. You want to push your jurors up in a raft onto the shore. You're pushing them. They don't really are aware of that, and you want them to think they discovered America. That's your goal. You don't want to make yourself look brilliant. You want the jurors themselves to think they discovered America. So what will happen is, is that I have learned over time that jurors are much more receptive to ideas they think they came up with themselves. Another example I can give you the same way is that I had a case many years ago, brutal, horrible murder. I don't need to get into all the facts of it, but a young nurse was kidnapped from Cal State Long Beach. She had a little two-year-old. She was married to a young nephrologist, and she disappears. And her body is found eight months later up in the canyon in Chatsworth, body parts. And it turns out, because of decomp, what we're able to show is, is that she had been stabbed all the way through the back, and it had chipped uh, one of her vertebrae. We'll never know how many times she was stabbed, et cetera, because unless it hit the bone, we never would have known it. But well, we, we found her clothing, and her clothing was rolled up. Her two shirts were rolled up, and there were no stab cuts in the clothing. So that meant that her shirt was off when she was stabbed to death. And it'll turn out that the killer is a crazed misogynist, devil-worshipping guy who just happened to run across her on campus, kidnapped her, made her drive her Volkswagen bug up in the canyon, and brutally murdered her. So they don't solve this case for years and years and years. About a month after her disappearance, before her body was even found, the guy who will turn out to be our killer ends up committing a robbery in Orange County of a dry cleaners and gets arrested by a responding police officer. He tells the police officer, hey, I have a backpack that has all my things. Can we rec can we get it? I hid it behind this bush. So I was like, okay. They get the backpack. Now, when the victim's body on our other case is found months later, she has a tool mark in her vertebra from the knife. And the knife was a double-edged dagger with a diamond tip. 
a very unusual night. So, again, go back to a month after her disappearance. Her body's not been found yet. They recover this bag. Inside this bag is a knife. That knife is a double-edged dagger with a diamond-shaped tip. And years later, we will get DNA. We can't say it's definitively hers, but it's human blood, and it's our victim, at least consistent with her, and it's not our suspects. And obviously, the problem that the suspect has is if you're going to argue that, well, that's not the victim's blood, what is the jury going to think? Oh, my well, God, he killed another one. You've got, you've got female human blood underneath the handle to your knife. It's kind of those win the battle, lose the war. If you convince the jury, oh, well, that's not her. That's not her blood. Oh, my God. Whose is it? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now we return to my conversation with John Lewin as he continues his anecdote about a previous trial that illustrates his strategy to allow jurors to make in their own minds the critical narrative connections that incriminate a defendant. When I am doing my opening statement in the case, I'm also doing this chronologically. So I'm telling a story of my victim. And at the same time, I'm telling a story of my suspect. My suspect was a guy whose father was special forces and died right after he was born or while his mom was pregnant in a plane crash from the Philippines. A bunch of special ops soldiers were killed. His father was one of them, and so he was a hero. And this kid grew up, and he was a fuck-up. And he ends up joining the Army, and he had a lot of issues with his mom. He hated his mom. That's probably one of the causes of the misogyny. And so the day before my victim is killed, he is kicked out of the army for drug use. And he goes home to his mom. His mom lived, this is how how interesting my cases are. The mom lived in the apartment building in Northridge that was the structure that came down during the 94 earthquake. There's only one major structure in LA County that came down. It was this apartment complex. I can't remember how many people were killed, but, you know, 10 years later, that apartment will come down. So he goes back to mom's apartment. He and mom argue the next morning. Mom basically tells him he's a fuck up. You've destroyed your father's memory. And he's angry. And he leaves and he cuts across the campus to go to his friend's house. And he runs into my poor victim, Elaine Graham, and he kidnaps her. Now, we were able to show that this knife that is found, so a knife, the knife that's found when he's arrested, we were later able to show that he had bought a gun from a, another soldier. I always laugh. This soldier had bought his wife for an anniversary present a gun. How do you think that went over? She wasn't yeah. really interested. So she made him sell the gun. My, def- my defendant, Edmund Marr, buys the gun. When he buys the gun, the soldier he buys it from has a little double-edged boot knife. And he asks him, hey, where'd you get that? 
and he tells them, the knife that is later found in the defendant's backpack is that exact same kind of knife. So when I'm doing my opening, I'm telling both of these stories simultaneously. Here's Elaine Graham. Here's her life. Here's her husband. Here's her little daughter who she drops off at the babysitters before she goes to her class at Cal State Northridge. And she's never going to get picked up. So I'm also telling the story that I just told you about Edmund Moore. So I'm kind of, I'm telling two parallel stories and the jury doesn't know, but these two parallel stories are going to meet on March 17th, 1982, when he's going to run into her and he's going to kill her. But when I'm telling the story, I don't talk about the killing at all. I skip. I'm going to go back. I see Elaine Graham is killed. I don't mention the evidence that I have. So now I say, so, you know, a month later, defendant is in Orange County. Her Volkswagen had been found in Orange County, a mile from where the, the defendant's sister lived later that night. In addition, this area of Browns Canyon was extremely remote. And it turned out that when he was in high school, the defendant and his football team used to run there. So I now have him connected to all three areas where she's kidnapped, where she's found, and 50 miles away where the car's found. So I'm doing this opening, and I show, so the, the officer recovers the backpack, and I show the contents of the backpack, okay? And if you look real carefully, it's only for a few seconds you will see a knife in the backpack that is double-edged dagger with a diamond-shaped tip. But at the time the jurors are seeing that, they don't know that it's going to be connected up. So now what happens is that Elaine Graham's body has been found. When the car shows up at the mall in Orange County, the defendant's sister lives a mile from the mall. The defendant's sister hears about this missing woman, realizes that she disappeared right kitty corner from where the mom lived. So if you were going to go visit the friend who he was probably going to visit, you would cut through campus at Northridge. And that's how he ran into Elaine. So she realizes, wow, that's really strange. The car showed up there. You know what? My weird brother shows up that night and he's acting really strange. And he's got a gun with him. And we go to a St. Patty's party. And at the party, he makes a statement when the sister finds the gun. He says, why do you have a gun? He says, you know, to protect somebody like a rape victim. So she's going, this is weird. Her brother has issues anyway. She ends up talking to her hairstylist and tells this story. The hairstylist is dating an LAPD officer, tells him, and this gets put in as a tip. Now, obviously, when you listen to this tip, Carrie, this is not exactly a tip where you're going, oh, yeah, okay, we got our killer, right? This is a tip that, again, 99% of the time is going to go nowhere. So eventually, detectives start going through the tips. They find it, and they start investigating Marr and start finding out some of the stuff that I told you. By the way, they're, they're getting this tip. She disappears in March. Her body won't be found until November, so they don't even have her body yet. So they start investigating Marr. They go and they interview him. By the time they interview him, I think it's in May, he's already in prison for the robbery in Orange County. And he's very strange when they interview him. So now fast forward in November, Paul Pippen from RHD and Leroy Roscoe, this is in my entire career. This is the best original investigation of any cold case homicide I've ever come across. The original investigation was phenomenal. So... Paul and Leroy, they find this arrest, 
and they go to Westminster Police Department, and they get the evidence. They look at the evidence. They don't really think much about it. Five months later, when they find the body and they do the autopsy and they see the wound, Paul remembers, wait a minute. Wasn't that guy arrested with a knife? He's the one that matches up the knife. So back to the whole point of the story. So in opening, I will show a picture very briefly of that knife. Why do I do it? Because one juror is going to remember that knife, just like Paul Tippin did. And when they get the information that, aha, uh-huh, you know, wait a minute. I remember, wasn't this guy arrested with a, uh, with a, a knife that sounds similar? When the defense later on criticized, says, well, it's not the same knife, etc., who are they attacking? Whose theory is the knife? It's not my theory anymore. It's the juror's theory. And I have learned that jurors are much more attached to ideas that they either came up with themselves or think they came up with themselves. So that goes back to pushing the raft onto shore and making, making them think that they discovered America. So I put that out there because I'm hoping one juror is going to see it, and then when they're later talking to the other jurors, they're going to be so hardened in, in, yes, they put it together. They solved this case. What were those tidbits, those breadcrumbs that you left for the jurors in the Durst case? So this is what I like to say about Durst. I've handled more circumstantial cold murder cases than I think anybody ever anywhere. There isn't a prosecutor that's done as many or as many no-body cases as I have. This case, on the evidence, was a slam dunk. This is even before Bob testified. And remember, the defense wanted to present this as a circumstantial case. It's not a circumstantial case. We have, like, three different confessions. We have physical evidence in the cadaver note. So there weren't any breadcrumbs to leave the jury. There were whole loaves of bread. So what I tried to do was, I knew what the defense was going to be, so I tried to structure my opening statement so that it would be very clear to the jury why the defense was stipulating to what they were stipulating to and that their defense had changed 180 degrees in the middle of the day. So that is why we go full circle. That is why I didn't need to tell the whole story of the handwriting and Bob denying it and this statement and and disguising his writing and, and galvanizing. I didn't need to say all that. I could have just said he stipulated to it. But why am I going to do that? Because his lies demonstrate a consciousness of guilt. His change of defenses demonstrate a consciousness of guilt. I'm not going to let him get away. If that dick is dumb enough to get up there, well, of course Bob wrote it, as if he's going to get away with the idea that, you know, we're not contesting that. That's really what that was. Well, you know, goody for the prosecution, you know, they're pointing out something, you know, we've agreed to. Yeah, you agree to it now. It's interesting because when I spoke with the juror, John Okanishi, yeah. he said that he did not remember that Durst had stipulated to writing the cadaver note from the opening statements, from the original opening statements. It was only when the trial resumed after the COVID hiatus that he asked himself, at the moment that it became clear that Durst was acknowledging writing it, when did that happen? Yeah, he's in the minority. I've talked to talked to uh, just about every juror on the case, and they were all aware that Bob had stipulated that he wrote the cadaver note. 
and they were aware that when you listen to the defense and the cross-examination of conditional examination witnesses and even the opening, they were aware that the defense had completely changed their defense. So returning to the question of how you think about whether you're boring the jurors oh. as opposed to over... Yeah, let me, you know. let me. I've heard this for 20 years, and I will tell you that I do the same thing in every case. So as an example, there were certain key issues in this case. One of the key issues was that Susan made the phone call, right? So how do I attack the idea? How do I demonstrate that Susan made the phone call? Well, I attack it two ways. The first way is by demonstrating Kathy did not make the phone call, right? And I call witness after witness and after witness. And this is what's so funny from the idiots on TV. And when I say idiots, I'm being charitable. They would say things like, I don't know why he's putting that on. He's made his point, and it's just wasted now. Well, you moron, the reason that I'm making the point is, is because I want to make that issue so overwhelming that the jury is bored hearing about it. And in order to be bored hearing about it, you have to have made up your mind. So what they didn't understand was, is that I put on all those witnesses because it put the jury in a position where they end up having to, to go, okay, yeah, no, Patsy did not make that call. I know from my experience that, A, in order to be bored as a juror, you generally have to have made up your mind. That's number one. Number two, in a serious murder case, no juror will ever go, you know what, I was going to convict this guy, but because the prosecutor took extra time, I'm not going to do that. And I cover this. In my closing, every time, I will say something like this. I understand, and I watch you, and some of you during this trial, even during this closing, would look over at us like, oh, my God, when are they going to shut up? Don't they think we're listening? And I want you to understand something. There's no scoreboard here. I wish that there was a scoreboard that you guys were keeping, and we knew, oh, it's 40 to nothing. We can just take a knee. We have no idea what's going through your minds. None. We don't have any idea. And I can tell you that the worst thing in the world is to have a juror come up to you after a case is hung or a not guilty and say, I just wish you would have responded to this. So I want you to think about something. Three people are dead in this case. I have a solemn job and an oath that I've taken to present this case as completely and as effectively as possible. So when some of you start to say, gosh, I wish he would shut up, I wish he would get moving, I wish he would finish up, you need to remind yourselves, remember, three people are dead. You want to ask yourself this, what if it were my love? What if it were my sister, my son, my daughter, who were the victim here, would I not want prosecutors who were going to go through and vigorously do their job? Because here's the bottom line. I can't get upset with you people for not doing your job if I don't do mine. You know what kind of case you can't do that on? A shoplifting case, okay? So you can absolutely lose a shoplifting case, a petty crime case, by overdrawing it, by boring the jury. And the reason is because they don't really care and they punish you for wasting your time. That doesn't happen in homicide cases. It doesn't. 
I knew that. I knew that from my experience. I knew that these commentators didn't know what they were talking about. And I also knew, particularly, and we got the same complaint on cross-examination. Over and over, you would hear, and even, even Judge Wynnum at one point, saying, hey, listen, you don't need to get him to admit everything. You can argue it in closing. And so many commentators said, you know, good lawyers, they get enough to argue in closing. Well, idiot commentators, here's the problem with that. The jury's going to be instructed that my arguments are not evidence, no matter how convincing they might be. What is evidence is what the defendant says. So I deliberately gave up time for our closing. We lost half a day's worth of closing so I could do more cross on Bob because in the end, I knew that Bob's answers were evidence. So if I argue something, that's not evidence. If I confront Bob with it, his response to that confrontation is evidence. So we knew what the, what was going on with the jury, and I just found it very entertaining watching idiots on TV who never have done this job. You know, it's the equivalent of some soldier who's never been to battle, ever, and they're telling you how to fight. Well, you know, how many states have you done? What's your rest? What kind of success have you had? That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin takes us through the conditional witness examinations of Peter Wilk, Lisa DePaolo, Gene Clark, and Al Cleethan. Again, if you are interested in hearing the impact of John Lewin's storytelling strategies at trial, revisit the first eight episodes of season one of this podcast, which cover Lewin's opening statement to the jury, or bonus episodes 16 through 30 of season two of Jury Duty, where we present interviews with two of the jurors who are Lewin's target audience during the trial. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 